Welcome to episode 111 of The Crux of the Story, where we discuss the art, science, and practice of communications and its impact on society. This is Gary Sheffer from Boston University's College of Communication. My co-host is Mike Fernandez, of course, as he has been for all 111 episodes. Mike is the CCO at Global Energy Company Enbridge. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. And so uh, on this episode, we're talking about social impact. Um, it's a phrase that frequently is being discussed and investigated across college campuses and among PR practitioners and elsewhere. How would you define, in, in sort of as your role as a global uh, CCO of a global energy company, how do you define social impact? You know, l let me start it <clears throat> actually a little bit more simply. As my kids were growing up, uh, when we would have dinner together, I used to ask them, what did you do today to make the world a better place? And they still tease me about it to this day, and I'm sure I'll hear about it as Thanksgiving comes up. But each of them in their own ways, all four children, today as young adults make a difference in the world because they have come to appreciate that it's important for them to think about their impact on a broader society, to give back, if you will, and to see how they might contribute to the betterment of the planet and society. On top of that, we're all aware that you know, back in 2015, the UN member nations committed themselves uh, to progress along 17 sustainable development goals by 2030, from eliminating hunger and poverty to clean water and reduced inequalities. And for years, businesses like when you were at GE, as well as other organizations, have sought to do good for a variety of reasons. But increasingly, more have even created a conscious and deliberate focus on how their operations can in themselves help transform society. I mean, one of the things that always comes to mind on this topic are companies like Tom's Shoes, where every shoe sold, uh, for every shoe sold, one is donated. So in my mind, social impact begins with the thought, given what we do, given what we excel at or can do, how do we make an impact on society from that? Excellent. Thank you, Mike. I, I, I hate to tell you what we talked about at our dinner table with our four children, but you know, <laughs> it wasn't that topic. Well, but, well, well, um, well, well, I have to tell you that my three girls always provided very earnest answers. And Will, who you've met, um, mm -hmm. oftentimes would take us on to fantastic journeys on, you know, how he saved the planet from a meteor shower or something. And all answers were valid. <laughs> all right, let's dive into this topic with our guests. We have two great um, people on the program with us today, two professors from BU's College of Communication who are working on social impact projects and curriculum. Marnie Zelnick, is an assistant professor of film and television writing at BU and an award-winning independent writer, director, and producer. She was the recipient of a Sloan Foundation Feature Film Production Award and a Roger King Foundation Award for her di directorial debut, Druid Peak, a fictional story of a troubled kid who is changed by his interaction with wolves and the wild places they inhabit. 
The film won seven Best Narrative Feature Awards, as well as the celebrated Jack London Spirit Award during its festival run. Marnie has served as a producer, line producer, and assistant director on films that screened at Sundance, Cannes, South by Southwest, Tribeca, and Berlin. She earned her MFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and a BA from Dartmouth College. Our second guest is Megan Irons, and Megan is an associate professor of the practice of impact journalism at BU, a position she took after more than 20 years at the Boston Globe, where she was a member of the elite spotlight investigative team. She, led a, she was a lead writer on a project that explored the injustice of the U.S.'s life without parole system. She was a lead reporter on the Globe's award-winning Valedictorians Project. I remember this, Megan. It was really amazing, which exposed socioeconomic inequities among Boston's brightest high school students a decade after graduation. That project was a 2019 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and it led to the creation of the Globe's Great Divide Education Reporting Team, which continues to explore those issues today. Megan was a member of the award-winning 68 Block series, where she lived in a troubled section of Dorchester to explore and better understand why violence persists there. She also has a rich body of work reporting in Boston's diverse communities. Megan is a real Bostonian, unlike me. Mm -hmm. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I'm a fake Bostonian. She grew up here in Mattapan and Dorchester. She earned bachelor's and master's degrees in journalism at Emerson College and Northeastern University, respectively. Wow. I am so impressed by the two of you. I don't know how I got a job at BU when I compare my resume to the both of you. Welcome to The Crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. So let's ask both of you, um, if you don't mind, how you think about social impact from a curriculum and educational perspective. I've, I've talked with several professors here at BU across the university, business school, international studies school, medical school, and everyone sort of seems to have a different definition of social impact. Uh, could you, each of you um, tell us how you define it? Megan, why don't we start with you? Gary, so thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And it's great to be here with all of you. This is a question that I've been thinking about for some time. Um, in 2021, I was on the Globe's team of reporters that covered the mayor's race in Boston. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we were struggling with as we started out that year was um, the low voter turnout. Every single mm -hmm. year, um, we would wonder why so few people in Boston, in Boston's neighborhoods in particular, had did not turn out for elections. Mm -hmm. And we were looking at, well, what could we do as, as a paper? Uh, and I remember somebody actually saying, could we change that? Could mm -hmm. we, uh, in the media, affect change to bring more people to the globe? There was a lot of discussions about it. And um, guess what? We went back to doing the same things we were doing, <laughs> right, <laughs> the obligatory yeah. uh, profiles, 
the let's look at the candidates on their issues, things that we know for certain that our readers um, say they want, but they don't actually read. Um, and I think being in, um, in academia and being on a college campus, I am very eager to explore what that means. Can the mm -hmm. media, right, we in the profession change? Um, or are we uh, stuck to a, a model of reporting and a model of covering uh, news and are, un are incapable of changing? Of changing, yeah. 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 Me Megan, we're going to come back to that because, you know, we're certainly in a period right now with presidential elections looming, uh, things going on geopolitically around the world, whether um, indeed... Uh, there has been any change or are we doing things the same way? So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that, Megan. Great topic. Marnie, how about you on social impact? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you know what Mike said really resonated with me, his dinner table story, honestly, because I had a very similar experience as, as a young person. I had a mentor who used to ask me all the time, this wonderful mentor who used to ask me, how does your great passion intersect the world's great need? And it's the same kind of question. You know, how can you take what you love to do and make it matter in the world? Um, and you know, when I talk about social impact or social purpose filmmaking, I'm coming from a little bit of a different perspective because I'm coming from an arts perspective. Um, and so what I'm really talking about with filmmaking is you know, how can we make work that really deeply engages with the pressing, is pressing issues of our society, our culture, or our world? And it's not necessarily advocacy, right? So it's not saying, look over here and do this, but it is saying, look over here, this is important. And I'm gonna try as an artist, just said, shed some light on issues or people or communities that maybe um, we wish our audiences paid more attention to or knew more about. That's interesting. That, that's really interesting, the difference between you and Megan, right? You're dealing with, in, in the case of the movie I mentioned, Druid Peak, it's a fictional story as opposed to the facts that, that Megan's, Megan deals with. Right. I mean, I think we're very specifically, as artists, not trying to do the same thing journalists are doing. There's, there's space for both of those things. And when it comes to fiction filmmaking in particular, I think audiences have a very low tolerance for, for films that feel didactic or message-driven, they're very open to films that pull back the curtain on a piece of the world they haven't seen before. I think we really enjoy that as an audience, but they don't want to be preached to, preached to in the theater. Um, so I think that's a big difference. Yeah, it's, it's like the difference between opening one's eyes, which it sounds like what you're trying to do, versus, uh, you know, getting to the nub of something that is maybe a little bit more concrete and out there and then speaks to kind of okay this this needs this needs eyes on it and we need to pay some attention to it so so marnie first you and then megan i'm really curious is how do you take this concept of social impact if you will and bring that into a course and into the classroom marnie i created a three-part course path at bu um, in social purpose filmmaking within our MFA screenwriting program. So what we're doing is we're taking students who are here as graduate screenwriting students, and we're asking them in their narrative shorts class, instead of just writing a short film about you know any subject you choose to write, 
we're asking them specifically to write something that is social purpose oriented. So write something again that engages deeply with some pressing issue in the world that you have experience in or that you're knowledgeable about or that you're just interested in. Um, and then they also take a directing class and a production class. And so four of those courses, those scripts that are written in the short film writing class are then chosen for production in the spring. Um, and they have an opportunity to make those films. Um, you know, and, and what it really comes down to in terms of the curriculum is number one, just allowing these students to reach for bigger subjects. You know, my experience in teaching this class is that these are young people and when they had no guidance, they would write about the kinds of things that you might expect. They wrote a lot of genre films about, you know, surprise, my roommate is a murderer or, you know, <laughs> hygiene. <laughs> like hijinks at the last frat party they went to. And it's not really their fault. They're young people and they haven't really been given a seat at the table yet. But when you ask them to reach for something bigger, they're, they're more than able to do that. And it's almost like you give them a chance to be an adult and say, yes, you know, you can have a voice now on things that are important. This is for you too. And it's for you to write about and it's time to step up. And they really, you know, the work that comes out of that program, it, it blows my mind, the breadth and depth of material that these students are capable of producing when they're given that challenge is, is really inspiring. I'm working on a curriculum for the fall of 2024. Um, but this year I've taught uh, a couple of reporting in depth classes and the way that I have, um, I guess for lack of a better word, infused um, impact journalism into those classes is to Think of the students in an experiential newsroom, and we are serving um, a purpose and filling a void in the vast news deserts that we're seeing in local journalism. So my students work with about, um, well, I work with about six different editors from various local news, the Bay State Banner, the Dorchester Reporter, Brookline.News, El Planeta, M-A-L-N. Most of these news organizations serve marginalized communities. Um, so in my class, we're emphasizing and amplifying stories from um, those communities. Uh, my students um, are filling a void. They're playing an important role in local journalism because most of these um, news organizations are struggling with one or two people as full-time staffers and they need bodies. And, um, and so I'm giving them bodies to do stories. Uh, and the other thing that I do too, is I, I'm moving away from some of the things that we would normally teach in a journalism class like that. We stress the inverted pyramid style writing, for instance, I just tell my students to write. Okay. These uh, newspapers and these online news sites, they need stories that people want to read. Uh, I think every person, whether you're in a rocking chair or you're on the treadmill, you want to read a story that's good about your community, about the people that's, that are in it. And you don't necessarily want every story to start with like, just the facts, ma'am, right? You want to tell a story, you want to be engaging. I think uh, you know, just having come from the globe, I think newspapers are just hungry for that kind of storytelling. You can start your internship and learn the inverted pyramid style, but you have to have that hunger and you have to have that desire. And that's difficult to teach. 
Um, and the last thing I'll say is one of the things I do stress um, in uh, my classes is that you have to be connected to the communities that you're covering. So I literally force my students to go out into the community and I make them take pictures of people that they talk to because that is another thing that is missing, I think, in the industry when we talk about the erosion of trust that people have towards journalists, towards the media, um, is that we are not so connected to the people that we're covering. And most people are hearing from us via an email or by telephone. And the things that I learned when I was in school ages ago, uh, which is that you get out of your comfort zone and you go and you meet with people, that it, we're moving farther and farther away from that, I think. And I think um, that's some of the little things that I'm doing in these classes, I think, I hope will make a big difference. So it strikes me, Megan, that the students that you're teaching, as well as the students that Marnie is teaching, they're really coming into all of this at a time that's much different than when Gary and I were in college. And thinking about the fact that you've got this focus on impact journalism, and yet in the background, what's happening in society is we're talking about sustainability, we're talking about ESG, you know, environment, social and governance issues, talking about purpose, talking about stakeholder capitalism. Uh, does that have an impact on these students and what they think about their careers? Yes, I, I do feel that we are much more equipped now than previously to put to name the experiences that uh, the students are currently going through. And they're, they're dealing with a lot, all the things you named, plus more. And um, I'm finding, I don't know if Marnie's finding the same thing, but the students are internalizing a, a lot of that, mm -hmm. processing it and trying to figure out, trying to figure out their, their place as journalists in it. Um, mm -hmm. I'll give you one example of that. There was a class recently that um, this was during the um, Hamas-Israeli conflict, and I was trying to teach um, the students about going out and talking to people and getting their reactions, particularly on college campuses, and traumatizing to the, uh, the subjects. And it turned out, as more oppressed, it wasn't so much that the people that were interviewing were expressing concerns is the reporters, the student reporters themselves that were expressing concerns about even raising the questions. And that to me suggests that there's a lot more work to be done in terms of how do we deal with a new generation of young people that are so connected to their feelings in a way that is sometimes a little strange to me. It made me step back and look at myself as a young journalist during that you know, coming up, if my editor had assigned me a story, I would have felt very obligated to just get the story done. Um, and I would have found a way to deal with my own feelings. But we are now at a place where how reporters feel about something is becoming part of the story, right? And becoming part of the challenge that we are facing in trying to teach about social impact um, because it is both exterior to what we do and very, very personal in a lot of ways.
hope that makes sense. But that's no, it does make it. It does to me particularly because you know I spent about twelve years as a journalist, and there was um, you weren't supposed to, at least in the situations I was in, come back and express your own um, reaction to news um, and what you'd seen when you were out reporting and felt, uh, unless you were a columnist or uh, someone like that, it was all internalized and, and kept inside. And I, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head is that this generation um, is affected more acutely than at least my generation, the people I worked with. M Marnie, how, how about? Sure, yeah. What Megan says really resonates with me, certainly. I mean, I think we could have a, a whole separate podcast on how students deal with difficult subject matter. Um, you know, that's an issue in, in filmmaking as well, even in terms of what we can screen or how they react to what we screen. And, and you know, there's certainly been a massive shift from when I was in school. Um, but to, to sort of go back to Mike's question about their awareness of um, social impact and whether they think about that in their careers, I guess I would argue that while it might be true that communication students in general are thinking about that, um, students in film and television, I think, are getting a bit of the opposite message. Um, and what I mean by that is like the boon in production, the, sorry, the, the boom in production um, that we've seen since the advent of streaming has not necessarily meant deeper engagement with difficult subjects. Um, you know, it's, it's complicated hmm. though. On one hand, we're seeing more work that is by and about diverse subjects. So we're seeing more of that than ever. There are countless streaming shows about LGBTQ plus, you know, issues in that community, the black experience shows that express the specific experience of traditionally underrepresented ethnic groups. At the same time, a lot of those shows fall into very traditional genres. So we're seeing rom-coms and murder mysteries and fantasy shows and teen dramas. So in a way we've like, it's like we've diversified the landscape without really challenging our audiences too much. Um, and you know, I, I think that at the same time, there are some really notable examples of films that have been shunned or blacklisted mostly in the documentary sector that have taken on controversial subjects or want to make an impact. I mean, you could think about The Dissident, Brian Fogel's documentary that couldn't find distribution and you couldn't get to see it forever. Um, or we just had Meg Smaker, the film filmmaker Meg Smaker, who made a film called The Unredacted. Um, we had her in to visit and, and show her film. It's a documentary film um, that follows a group of Yemeni men who were accused of ter terrorism and held at Guantanamo for over a decade and then were sent to a rehabilitation center in Saudi Arabia. And she made a, a really intimate documentary about their experiences there and it, it can't get distribution, so you can't see it anywhere. Um, you know, so I think again, you're looking at on one hand, more, more diverse vo voices in the room, but the kind of work that's being made is still pretty narrow in focus and pretty non-confrontational. And, you know, while we can look at some documentaries that are made and then can't find distribution and we can say, oh, here's an example of something that is asking big questions, wants to have an impact. And, you know, we, it can't find a home because documentaries are often funded and made independently to begin with. What we don't know is like, what are the fiction examples of that that aren't even getting an audience? Because people don't go out and shoot their own fiction films and shows that often, sometimes an independent film for sure, but not TV shows, you know? So I always have this question with me that's like, 
what is the stuff we're not seeing that might be more impactful, that might be more groundbreaking, but that the streaming yeah. services and the networks are saying, eh, no thanks. My, my, my guess is this is also complicated by the fact that, uh, you know, in in print, you only have so many words to carry a story. And, sim sim and similarly, you know, in film, you know, the standard, you know, full length fe feature, people write to 90 minutes. And even though some movies obviously go longer, uh, the reality is, you know, it's much easier to create something that is easy, more easily uh, done within those time frames, and to do it in a way that it's a clash of good and evil as opposed to dealing with the underlying complexity of the story. I don't know that it's about time. I think that's a that's a sort of easy out, you know, which mm -hmm. is, look, we have lots of miniseries, lots of TV shows that go on for seasons. There's plenty of time to be had. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's a lot more about market decisions driving the, our creative choices. Um, yeah. You know, and, and you know, when you look at something, so since we have Megan, who was on the Spotlight team, you look at a film like Spotlight, which I would argue is a beautiful example of social purpose filmmaking, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's impactful, it's meaningful, it's shedding light on a subject that we wish audiences knew more about or paid more attention to. You know, that film did $98 million worldwide, which for that film was great, but the Meg too, the Trench, which is an action movie about a group of people trying to escape a giant shark, made $395 million worldwide. So, you know, I think the bigger question to ask is, or really the lesson is, you know, should we make, or should we only make art based on market principles? Because if our only goal is to maximize profit, then, you know, we're building a very dark world. Yeah. It's, you know, the streaming wars are so intense. Marnie, right? I mean, you look at Disney and other, you know, I teach business acumen here at BU and, you know, the students always want to take a look at Disney and if it doesn't improve its marketability of its uh, content, they're going to have a problem. So they're looking for the commercial, mm -hmm. like the Meg 3, right? They're just, they're very focused on that. And, and so I'm glad to hear that you're asking your students to think about social impact. What Marnie, what kind of topics in this course, what kind of topics do they focus on in their filmmaking? I mean, the the breadth of what they focus on is is wide. You know, just from last spring, we had um, issues of racism, we had gender and gender identity. Um, we had a story about, you know, trans relationships. Um, the year before that, I had um, a a film about that was actually made by a veteran um, who was in our program, and he wrote a film about veterans trying to readjust to life in mm -hmm. the you know, normal life in the United States. Um, and the character that he had chosen was actually a rideshare driver. So he had this. This was Brian Thompson mm -hmm. who was in our program, and he made this great short film um, about a rideshare driver who's picking up passengers. He's listening to um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan on the radio while driving passengers around Washington, D.C. who sort of are paying no attention and don't want to connect with him or talk to him in any way. And what that's, you know, how disorienting that is. Um, you know, we've had films that, um, again, I mentioned immigration, but also it's sort of about um, a young immigrant family trying to adjust to life in the United States. Um, we've had films that were about uh, several lots of scripts about social media and 
the effect of social media, the alienation, I think that this generation is feeling, you know, by virtue of growing up with so, the influence of social media. Um, it's again, it's, it's sort of all over the map. They're big subjects. That's fantastic. I was going to say, I, I imagine the environment comes into play. The students mm -hmm. are very concerned and attuned to what's going on environmentally. Well, so how did you get to this point that you're interested in this topic? I see you worked at Refugees International, which is which focuses yeah. uh, DC based think tank focuses on refugee issues and plenty of those, as we know, in the world today. Um, is your formation through that kind of work, you did some work in Thailand mm -hmm. for refugees. Um, how does that all come through and, and what message are you trying to send if it's a singular one, maybe it's an unfair question, through your filmmaking like Druid's Peak and, and the writing that you do as well? Where's your interest, Marty? Mm. I, I think how I got here is is the simplest answer is parenting. Um, you know, my father, <laughs> you know, my father was a journalist. He was a correspondent for ABC News for, you know, 20 plus years and then taught journalism here at Boston University. Um, and, and we grew up just deeply engaged with world events. You know, the topics at dinner were always about what was going on in the world. Um, the there was no kind of cheap entertainment. In fact, as a child, I wasn't allowed to watch television until I was 16. So except the news, we were allowed to watch the news. And some <laughs> watch of my, Dad. <laughs> yeah, we could watch Dad on the news. We could watch some of Dad's favorite films, you know, Casablanca and Lawrence of Arabia over and over again. But but really, you know, again, it was just that commitment to, to being involved in what's going on in the world and understanding that you have impact and you have a voice. You know, I think I, I grew up watching journalists and what they did and greatly admiring that. I didn't Feel like that was my space in the world. I felt like I, you know, I always loved fiction. I always loved novels. I always loved writing. I wanted to do fiction writing, but I didn't want to leave behind the idea that whatever I'm writing about should have some profound meaning or impact on the world. Um, and you know, Druid Peak is a, is a good example of that. So I came out of NYU, the NYU MFA program, and um, the Sloan Foundation, which is an incredible foundation that, among the many things that they do, they support filmmakers who are making films about science or technology on screen. Um, and so they offered a $100,000 production grant for the best feature film that dealt with either science or technology on screen. Um, and I was inspired by that grant to write the film Druid Peak, which was, um, it's a coming of age story about a, a young boy, young troubled teen kind of finding his place in the world. But it's also very much about conservation issues. So it's set against the backdrop of the Wolf Reintroduction Program in Yellowstone. And it really deals with, you know, at the time there was this big transition from um, thinking about conservation as just protection. So, you know, when I was growing up again, it was how do we conserve things just by setting aside land? And then that ship sailed and, and it became, we can't just protect land things, we have to rebuild them, we have to restore them. And the Wolf Introduction Program was this really beautiful program where they bought, they brought, they didn't buy them, they, they brought them back. Um, gray wolves from Canada and reintroduced them to um, Yellowstone Park. And what it showed was not only how you can restore a, a habitat, but also the effect that one species has on everything else around it. So the kind of interdependency of species and, um, and the whole ecosystem. So the film is really about the wolves, but it's also about the trophic cascade, which is, you know, how one thing affects another. Um, and and how, you know, again, when you bring back wolves, it changes the movement of groups of elk 
who the wolves hunt because the elk don't stand around and eat the same foliage over and over again, because if they do, they get killed by the wolves. So they move and, and that allows different kinds of plants to grow. And when those plants grow, different other species that depend on those plants come back. So, you know, it was this way of, of looking at a, a really important conservation issue, but doing it through a human lens and, and a lens of um, a personal story. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. All right, Megan, I'm going to come back to the topic that we you talked about earlier, which as a former journalist is fascinating to me, is what kind of job is journalism doing today on big issues, right? Uh, on issues that um, matter uh, in this framework that we're talking about with social impact, climate, racism, child poverty, economic inequities. And there is some frustration, I think, among people that, as you say, journalism um, isn't changing uh, with um, with the times, and in and, and, and politics, particular uh, particularly this sort of racehorse journalism, uh, transactional journalism around elections, for example. How good is journalism doing today in addressing some of these big topics that, um, frankly, are uh, existential, if you will, uh, for some people? It's a really big question, right? Um, because you see some really terrific journalism happening right now. ProPublica holding Supreme Court justices accountable for for their behavior, stunning behavior, and actually forcing the Supreme Court to, to consider or develop policies related to ethical conduct, justices' behavior. The, the big papers continue to do really good journalism in terms of um, sticking mm-hmm. to our credo, you know, holding the powerful accountable. But journalism is, as you know, um, facing almost seemingly insurmountable odds because there is also a powerful disinformation campaign that is constantly trying to erode what journalists are doing. And we have a sizable section of our population that simply do not believe the truth. And that is the problem, right? And so there is vigilance and an effort to continue to do what we do. And hopefully, you know, the truth will win (laughs) at some point. But some of the things I was referencing earlier, um, in the past few years, I, I I will say that I have seen some positive changes in um, journalism, uh, both behind the scenes and not behind the scenes in terms of hiring, in terms of uh, reasserting um, values, in terms of refocusing um, the stories and recentering stories on people, uh, not so much the powerful, but they're still... um, habits that are just extremely difficult to break. Um, And that's the one I was speaking to earlier in terms of how we cover political campaigns. How do we 
report what is actually happening, but present them in a way that is accessible to people who may not be, I mean, may not be able to forward our journalism and may be getting um, news from places like TikTok and you, you know, YouTube and social media that is just completely distorting the truth in a lot of ways. I mean, there's just proof that that's happening. So this is that the, our media, the review is mixed in terms of the changes that we're seeing. There are some positive things that are happening, um, obviously based on some serious reporting that we're seeing. But not every news organization has the resources of ProPublica or the New York Times or the Washington Post to devote uh, talent to dig through the documents and hold government accountable. And as I said, a lot of our local newspapers where trust is not eroding, you know, the very community, yeah. they, don't have, they don't have the money to do the kinds of things that need to be done. So nobody is watching um, the local school boards, None. which are being repopulated now by... Uh, extreme views. Um, nobody's watching um, the sorts of things that made journalism um, what it was in the past. Yeah. You know, I live, Megan, to your point, I live in a news desert. Um, I'm in a relatively affluent recovering community in the Hudson Valley of New York mm-hmm. State. But there's the local coverage, you know, the local newspaper has one or two people covering the entire community yes, and and in a place where there was a family run newspaper in the past, that was very intense, intensive coverage of what was going on governmentally. So it's not just government at a federal or a state level. It's these local communities who have no accessibility to what's going on um, in their own governments um, because of the lack of resources. And I will say too, Gary, that like the bigger papers too used to be reading um, the local papers. Interesting with, point. Yeah. With, yeah. They're not doing that as much. Yeah. You know, as evidence, George Santos. Right. The, lo- <laughs> the Republican congressman, we think. The, re- from- the, the local papers were covering him. Right. But it just flew under the radar of the New York Times. Yeah. And the question is why? Yeah. You know, you know uh, I'm proud to say for the crux of the story, this little podcast that we do, we have had some um, some folks on, journalists on, who are doing really good work. Uh, Judd Blagum from Popular Information, he's a Substack writer, has um, um, really done great work on some of the book banning um, uh, efforts in Florida and elsewhere. Uh, and got it changed and uh, covered things like the lack of sick time pay at uh, Wegmans and other supermarket chains and got it changed. So talk about journalism with very specific impact. Judd, Judd has been uh, remarkable. And in a couple of weeks, we're having Ian Urbina on. Ian is a former New York Times reporter who has a project called The Outlaw Ocean. And he had just had a big piece in The New Yorker. Uh, about abuses uh, in the fishing industry. And already there's, we're seeing some legislative changes from the work that he did just over the past or published over the past month. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to see that. And it's good that um, those journalists are being recognized 
but um, I don't know about you, but I often feel like a lot of that work just sits in the shadow. You know, um, we don't often see them. Uh, we don't often hear about them. And that was very different, I think, in the past because um, uh, the traditional press fixated on certain topics and others get left out. Um, others get left out. So, Marnie, one of the things that uh, we've explored here on the show in the past is is documentary filmmaking. Um, and I'm thinking of crypt, a scripted series such as, you know, Painkiller on the Origins of the opi Opioid Epidemic or documentaries such as The Inventor about the fraud perpetrated by Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. Uh, why are filmmakers uh, suddenly so focused on business accounting? Why, why are... Whew, why are filmmakers suddenly so focused on business scandals, do you think? It's such a great question. Um, I, I actually really love this question in part because I think the answer is a couple of different components that um, will give you a sort of whole cross-section of why people watch the things they watch, right? So a little bit of insight into that. The most boring answer, I think, is that there's really nothing the entertainment industry likes to do more than give audiences the same thing, but a little different. So as soon as you get one that's successful, you're going to get 30 more that are in the similar genre and a similar vein, um, because then the algorithm can spit one out. When you watch the first one, the algorithm can spit out five more things that you might like. So that's that's sort of the boring answer is that copycatting in entertainment is, is very common. Um, but I think there are also two really far more interesting factors at play. Um, first, you know, I think we're certainly living through a, what some other writers have already dubbed the golden age of the con artist. Um, I think there's a strong and almost apocalyptic sense that nothing is real anymore. Um, there are fakes and misinformation all around us, and it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference. And stories like the ones that you mentioned, they tap into that anxiety. Um, in a way, it's it's almost like a new horror genre, right? These are the new monsters that are feeding off the income and often the lives of ordinary people. And, and so I think that is definitely part of it. It's like a, a cultural fear that we have right now. Um, and then I think the last part is like, there's a little bit of schadenfreude involved. Um, for those of us watching at home who are still working too many hours um, at our jobs and who are struggling to pay the rent and who are suffering through a very difficult economic time, I think watching these wonder kids eat dirt is sort of spiritually satisfying. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> so I, th I really think that's part of it too. Everybody wants to see a good train wreck, right? Especially. <laughs> you do, especially when you have the sense that, you know, people are always floating magically to the top through mm. means that don't really feel honest and to yeah. watch them go down when you're doing the right thing all the time and getting and, nowhere. And, and Marnie, I have to tell you, in my, I teach crisis communication and I teach this business course. The students love these business documentaries. And, and and they and maybe it's the shit and fraud that you talked about, right? Which is you get to you know see these folks taken down, but you know fire festival that awful influencer situation on some remote island, uh, the opioid stories. There's been many of them. Well, you know, the and, students, and somebody who seemingly you know does when we it talk about crisis communication Oliver, and we talk right? about business Cause, failure because like they in, are very in, in enthusiastic participating he in manages to find you know someone to kind of 
uh, help him with that story. Right. Huh. Yeah, McKenzie had a rough, rough go on Oliver a couple couple weeks ago. I mean, again, I think we're living through a time where we feel like the systems are really corrupt and really corrupt in a way that is, you know, contributing to vast inequality. And that is compelling. And we want someone to show it to us and show us that maybe good will triumph in some small way. You know, I mean, I look at I look at this historically and I think, you know, man, the generation before us, my parents' generation, lived through Watergate and Vietnam, and they felt disillusioned. And then look at us. We were raised by the people who lived through Watergate and Vietnam. And then we had big tobacco, and we had VW, and we had weapons of mass, mass destruction that never existed. And you know, I, see, I think people feel really disenchanted, and we feel like, you know, the, disenchanted. And we feel like, man, what's the next balloon that we can pop? Because none of this seems real. Megan, can I come back to your project on 68 blocks? Where, and so tell us a little bit about it. You lived, uh, you, you're from Dorchester, at least lived in Dorchester, um, and reported on uh, continuing issues in that community. Tell us about it and <laughs> what came out of it. Do you feel like the project had an impact? Um, and it's one that I've wrestled with um, for many years because some of the problems still remain, even though there were changes. Um, but the project came about because for many years, uh, we at the Globe were noticing that um, there was an, in, in, uh, a pattern of shootings of young Black boys in a specific part of uh, our city, particularly in that specific area of Dorchester. And at one point, um, there was a sense of outrage um, that this was happening and seemingly kind of helplessness in terms of like, why was this particularly specific area so plagued with so much violence? And so that was the basis for the investigation. This really raises an interesting point about both of your works. And even, even as Gary and I have tried to bring some good into what corporations pursue in general, is there's the, there's the noble cause, right? And then there's, okay, so we make a noble effort, but how do we define that, that other word, that impact? You know, because no matter what we do, how do we how do we feel about the outcome, or or, or does it really matter when it comes to impact journalism or uh, impact from the eyes of a documentary filmmaker? Is it enough to simply, you know, draw the eyes to it? You know, I remember just to answer that question, like I was um, after that series ran, uh, it was a five part series that explored both City Hall's response to boat in Geneva and um, and um, our reporting on a particular issue. Somebody at the Globe decided that they were going to have a community meeting and we were going to share our findings with the community. Well, we sat in front of people who 
hated the project. They they were people who um who um we tried to get to help us with the project, but they were so concerned about um that neighborhood being portrayed in such a negative light that when they saw us, we were it felt like we were sitting in a you know with a firing squad with like you know people just coming at us all different ways, just really upset by the fact that we shed we put a spotlight on that particular community. And at that point we were, I was questioning, okay, this is not the kind of impact we wanted. (laughs) We did not want to be seen. Like we were here trying to throw more dirt on a, you know, on a community that has already um, been trying so hard, so desperately to um, change the narrative around how it is being perceived. But, you know, I just feel that as journalists, we have a right, um, our basic philosophy is that we are shining a light on an injustice, right? And the the big question is, um, do people deserve to live that way? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, do we have enough police uh, in the neighborhood and are they just purely um, responsive to the problems? is the city doing a, a good job in terms of connecting people where they are, particularly people who are working two or three jobs? What is the point of having a community meeting at 6 p.m.? No one's going to show up. Um, and so some of the methods the city had used just were simply not going to work in this neighborhood. So look, we were in front of a verbal firing squad. We had to take the tough questions. We had to um, defend ourselves about why we were there in particular. Um, But did we make an impact? Of course we did. Um, We put a spotlight on a neighborhood that really needed it. Um, There were efforts that were already underway and there were more efforts that came as a result of this piece. You mentioned documentaries again. I, I don't work in documentary. I work in narrative fiction, so dramatic writing for film and television. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think about is not only short-term impact but long-term impact. So um, you know, when we're looking at how does what we see on TV, how does what we see in film change the conversation? Often it's how does it change the conversation culturally over a very long time. Um, and actually, Malcolm Gladwell has a really interesting podcast about this. He has an episode of his revisionist history that talks about the effects of Will and Grace, the TV show Will and Grace, which was one of the first shows to really put, um, you know, gay men, gay couples on screen. And, you know, he says that in the 90s, when the show premiered, only a quarter of the of U.S. citizens were in favor of gay marriage. And then by the time the show ended, that number had doubled. And now it's over 70%. So, you know, when I think about impact, a lot of the times when I'm talking about fiction filmmaking or TV, I'm talking about how do you start a conversation and how do you start to move the needle in a way that may take a long time, but has a lot, has an impact over time. I, I have to say that I'm really proud to be part of a university and a college that's looking at these issues um, as Marnie and, and Megan know, we're um, looking at social impact as a broader field of study and uh, curriculum and research um, and activity inside our own College of Communication. And um, 
I wish I, when I went to college, I had the opportunity to learn from people like you. It really is inspiring. So thank you so much. And, and, and thank you for being on the crux. And for listeners, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Crux of the Story. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.
Oh, great. Great. Okay. Well, thank you to you both for the time. And we'll stitch this all together. It will look like we actually know what we're doing. (laughs) You know? So... Yeah, it's a great combination. And think about the Megan and Marnie show. I'm telling you, is you guys are fantastic. So, all right, Catherine, take care. Bye bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are. Thank you very much. All right.